Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup as we stand on shifting sands in the most worrying world since God knows when. Resourcefully pour ourselves the last glass of Prosecco we're likely to be able to afford for quite some time. Gulp nervously and briefly turn our minds towards art for a few comforting moments. The art of satire and the creative fruits of punishing trauma as it turns out to be. In this programme, we talk to eminent political cartoonist Andy Davey to see if we can come to terms with the world in crisis and find anything remotely funny about it from the satirist viewpoint. And we interview Cambridge photographic artist Julie Kim Roster, who's been exploring Cambridge University archives to discover unpublished letters and artworks of the war poet Siegfried Sassoon and what they tell us about the traumatised mind and the special brand of art that it creates. Is the recently vastly changed political landscape now new and fertile ground inviting the satirist to return to the forefront of the public domain in a month when spitting images returns to our screens and the cartoonists champ at the bit with the new political line-up in sight? Or would they be better off jumping back into their foxholes as the jokes seriously fall off the page in the reality of a massive sense of humour failure generally this year? I've been talking to satirical political cartoonist Andy Davey, whose much-acclaimed work appeared in numerous top papers for decades, and also in publications across Britain in the European newspapers and on satirical TV series 2DTV. He's also appeared on Channel 5 and Sky TV News, and his work is often currently seen both in the Evening Standard and the Telegraph. He says the art of poking fun needs now to be tackled quite carefully since the run-over political animal is looking distinctly gamey following both Brexit and Covid. Uh, You're a leading cartoonist, but you're also, uh, uh, is it chairman of the British Cartoon Association? I was chairman of something called the Professional Cartoonist Organisation, which is more like the sort of provisional wing of British cartooning. We, we, We were actually trying to increase the visibility of cartoons because we saw that they were disappearing from from publications, so we sort of thought we we needed because the BCA, the, the other one is um is a kind of luncheon club really or dining club run by Martin Rosen at the moment well for a long time but there but they're, that's essentially a social club but this was supposed to be something to address the problem that we saw was happening which was the loss of the print media and the loss of cartoons from that and also for, uh, uh, not a successful transition into digital what, what are you actually working on at the moment was these days i mean i was sort of hired gun really i stand in for other people really because everything's every space is taken in what used to be Fleet Street, I guess. I stand in primarily at the moment at the Telegraph and the Standard, both of which, you know, they're not my natural political territory but then none of the media really is except you know maybe some of the maybe the guardian and whatever but you know the, those positions are well and truly taken so uh, you know i stand at the telegraph and the, and the standard whenever they need somebody i, I used to be the editorial cartoonist for the sun and i mean it sounds like an oxymoron really the idea that there, there is such a thing and in fact now they don't have an editorial cartoon i managed to put that in the grave for them. Okay, so I mean, we're looking now at a world um, on shifting sands in in a certain degree of economic and political turmoil. This must be time for the great ship satire in Britain to give a 21-gun <laughs> salute to the entire um, political system um, in terms of cartoonery, because it, it must be the most fertile point um, in British history since God knows when um, for setting up um, uh, politicians for um, satirical cartoon making and it's great to see 
that spitting images have um, dusted off um, uh, their guns and, and, and they're going to appear on um, BritBox at the end of the week for the first time in many years and, and to see Ro uh, Roger Law um, back on the box and, 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 and ready to have a go at it. How, how do you feel about all of that? I think it's great that spitting images is coming back. I, I used to work with um, Giles Pilbrow who was the producer or, uh, in, in his very early days he was our assistant producer or something I think at Spitting Image and uh, we worked on a program called 2D TV which was a kind of son of uh, Spitting Image uh, Roger Law wasn't involved in it but he did drop in occasionally but it was a it was a kind of drawn version of uh, without puppets it was it was first uh, 2D was the was the hint you know it was supposed to be sort of like a newspaper cartoon come to life and I met a few of the people who used to work on Spinning. One, one guy in particular, Pablo Bach, who was a genius Argentinian caricaturist who, who drew all the sort of the, the caricatures in the style of Giles Pilbrough, who was also a cartoonist. And he, he, he managed to draw all of the caricatures in this simple Giles, Giles Pilbrough sort of gag cartoon format. And I thought that was just absolute genius. And he, he was the one who did a lot of the original modelling on the 80s and 90s puppets, which were also brilliant in their own way. Um, in those days, Gluck and Law had a studio in Orchard Street in Cambridge, which yeah. is where they did it all yeah, the yeah. Um, auctioneers. And um, they spent a great deal of time in creating um, that whole generation of um, puppets. And I can remember, um, you know, having met him uh, a couple of times, that he was the kind of guy that, that didn't suffer fools easily. Yeah, I know, that was obvious. Uh, and and yeah. that, that was the whole crux of his personality yeah. and, um, and, and was an, has been the most fantastic satirist. Um, yeah. So um, it, are you really a kindred spirit with, with people like No, that? I'm not really. I mean, because I, 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 uh, one day he dropped in and Steve Bell dropped in as well, and it was like watching two bears, you know, in a sort of time out between a, a kind of bear fight. It, they, they were two very similar people in a way. They're very headstrong, as you say, but, you know, don't don't uh, accept fools gladly. And it struck me that, you know, maybe you need that. If you're going to be a satirist, who wants a satirist, really? I mean, especially who's going to pay a satirist, you know? <laughs> why, do you, why do you want to pay someone take the piss out of you you know you you wouldn't want no state wants a satirist and very few kind of of the right-wing media want a satirist really so i think it's essential that they're back it's great they're back. and one thing they did originally spinning image did was to give a sort of kick in the pants to 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 newspaper cartoons in a way which were already kind of stultifying i think then in the 80s and it's always been pillory and satire have always been um one of those features of the 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 entire British culture mm. that basically that if you if you mess up in public life it, it, it gets you basically mm. and, and and not having that or that being uh, weak is, is actually in many ways um, it's one of the things that checks yeah. a behaviour in public life sure. um, tremendously the fear of, of, of that happening it should be sounding off at this point it should um, I mean there's, a, there's several things probably to say about that first, first of all yes what you said earlier about the fertility of the situation is absolutely fertile ground for satire but you know you there are two th things that come to mind straight away from that one is it's you know look at Trump or Johnson and it is beyond satire you can't make more fun of a man who thinks that the virus will just go away because he says it's going to go away or you can't really easily satirize that because he looks like a fool to make him more foolish is kind of difficult. The other thing, the other thing is satire is 
you know, a satire is certainly needed in times like this, but who in this environment, as I said earlier, wants to employ a satirist, a real satirist? Because mm. all of our media essentially is owned by offshore billionaires. Why would they want uh, a satirist to make fun of a prime minister who is greasing their palms and filling their pockets with with money and uh, and a low tax uh, mm. regime? Why would they want? Why would anybody want to have satire performed? in that environment. People discover satire in newspapers sort of serendipitously, you know, they, in the old style of a newspaper. You, you, you look through a newspaper and you come across it amidst all the rest of the stuff, you know. So it's a joyous kind of relief from all the reading, but that kind of model has gone these days with flashbang websites and, and you know, tabloids. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that... Well, I mean, people obviously still need satire. They'll always need satire because it's a it's a release valve. That's know. so good, isn't it? It's a, yeah. It is the release valve. Yeah. It allows you to 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 shoot the pillow, yeah. you know, yeah, in yeah. a big way. Um, and that's that's I think the and the, there's one thing that's a, that seems to be powerful uh, is the drawn image. I, I didn't really realise this until <laughs> until recently. You know, because you, you notice if that if you put a tweet if you tweet something okay you get some people for looking at it but if you as someone else discovered and actually told me and he hired me to draw cartoons for him was that tw tweets with cartoons attached to them or with drawn images attached to them have a kind of 10 to 100 times more engagement than a, a, a textual tweet <laughs> you know so there's obviously a power still to the drawn image even more than the photographic image which i think we've become a bit inured to even the most horrific photos. Okay, so I mean, mo moving on from um, from the need for satire, to what extent do you think that COVID has now changed the political game globally? I kind of, I mean, I would love for it socially for it for us to real to to make us realise that uh, we're all dependent on each other, you know, and that the world is capricious, you know, the the nature is capricious, and that we are in that sense, unlike the George Osborne version, we are all in it together you know we we it's a lot down to luck and once we start i hope we start realizing that that we're here because we're i mean we in this wonderful town of cambridge in this united land at the moment um are very lucky very very lucky people to live in this kind of lovely environment if everybody realized how lucky they were i think it would change things and it would well a it would make everybody happier but that also might 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 have a follow-on effect into the politics because politics i guess follows the zeitgeist like it has done for the last 50 years following the kind of thatcherite zeitgeist and these things change gradually but they do respond but politics does respond to social changes or, or perhaps psychological changes in people i just like to think that's what might happen do you think that there will be a kind of in the first place uh, an orgy of selfishness about um, yeah. uh, um, everything that, that will then eventually um, you know um, melt away into um, into a more kind of sober way of dealing with the economic and social issues that are going to be absolutely forced upon us by what's happening yeah. in Covid. You may be right I mean I, I, can't, I can't I don't know I, of course there's a counter force as you, ju you just kind of alluded to which is that of populist xenophobia you know mm. which is a is a force which rends us apart you know and doesn't build it's like it's like love and fear you know mm. fear is kind of entropy and it just re it, it pulls us all apart and has a destructive influence that of course you may be right that could happen before or it could just carry on i mean I, you know we're in a state of not quite chaos but 
we're headed. I think that we're we're in a, the most a tremendously uh, difficult mist, you know, in terms of how the future is going to yeah. pan out, and, and standing on sifting sands and, and not able to make that much sense of, of it, and nobody can plan. So that that makes uh, the, the world tremendously um, uncertain, and um, especially um, in the political arena, because I think that um, you know, um, but you know, God knows what will happen. I mean, um, David Attenborough has just um, snubbed Trump in his latest interview for being entirely contrary to the climate emergency and inappropriate for Americans' needs. Now, even his um, gentle style of politics seems to be in retreat in this yeah, world. Uh, and we seem to have Biden com coming in as well on the other side. What do you make of him? I mean, what Oh, do God, I don't know. Really, <laughs> I don't know. He's a bit of a... Uh, I suppose I should have noticed him before over the last 40 years, but he's an unknown quantity to me. I, I have no idea. He's just not Trump. That's the point, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> that seems to be his political yeah, ticket, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm not <laughs> Trump. But you, you're right about him, bro. I mean, Atom is a good case in point of the kind of the, the old guard, you know, the King Clarks of, of the world, and who who uh, lived uh, the social sphere in a, in a different way, in a more kind of polite way. And I suppose, you, well, at 90, you can say what you want, really, can't you? <laughs> and he's shown incredible restra restraint over the past, what, 50 years of filmmaking in, in uh, an increasing global climate catastrophe. And his, his programs always have this kind of shard of optimism through <laughs> them. And, uh, I, you know, sometimes I think he just puts it in there just because he knows he has to, because we'll just say, we'll just throw our arms up in the air if there's none of that, you know, but... But he, yeah, and well, who wouldn't, who wouldn't call out Trump as a 90-year-old as respected mm. person? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also we have this um, move away from um, the principles of liberal democracy, yeah. um, which we, we've enjoyed um, for a very long time, um, to this type of dictatorial-style, um, democratic mm. uh, um, new model that seems to have come, it seems to have been largely... <laughs> pulled off in Western democracies. Um, yeah. uh, is that something that um, you, you ever engage with in terms of putting that up in the world as a satirist uh, and saying, you know, let's, let's examine this phenomena and, and um, let's lean into it and see what it really means? Is I'd that, like to. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd like to do those things. <laughs> and I, I suspect most editorial cartoonists would. <laughs> it, but who, you know, who are your targets? I mean, democracy is a good w word in a sense. Or, or I suppose another word for our state might be oligarchy in a way, because we have... Who are we run by? I mean, we're not actually run by our elected politicians, it seems to me. We largely are... I mean, you know, democracy suggests that, that, that these kind of aggressive populists get in get control in t in these times when when it, the, the when the atmosphere is is right for it and you know the the rich take over and the thrusting ambitious take over but another, i suppose another another way of looking at it is an oligarchy and i, I would suggest that the media barons are actually a lot more powerful than and i, I think they've you know largely sown the seeds of brexit for the last 30 years and xenophobia attached to it and um they pull the strings you know you can see it at the newspapers you can see how governments try to fall in line with the major uh, well mostly the right-wing media and to you know I, I do occasionally think I I try to, to make fun of these people but it's like it's like grasping at clouds because all of them are quite publicity shy 
largely because of, I guess, their financial situations. But they don't want anyone to know they're in charge. And so, you you know, you can... So, make- so something very extraordinary seemed to have happened um, in politics um, during the Brexit process. I mean, obviously everybody saw it on television, but it, it was this putting out to pasture of the Conservative Party yeah. that, that basically existed since... Mm. Um, since uh, the post-war um, consensus. Th- really. You know, the, the post-war consensus and, uh, and, and the Thatcher um, era. And they basically put out to pasture all of those people during um, Brexit, and, and then now we have this um, franchise... Um, populist type mm. of conservatism mm. which has come in um, and um, you know obviously um, Boris Cummings and Keir Starmer are the key figures mm. and it seems to me that you know splitting images seem to be going after um, people like Cummings in a big way because they want to um, set that up um, as something that that they want to make fun of, and probably you know Keir Starmer will su- will will suffer equally badly yeah. from 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 yeah. from that kind of satire. Um, but um, it seems to me that um, that change. I mean, Cummings' great catchline was "Take control," yeah. and that um, that has taken control. Um, of the country. Um, what is your take on what Boris Cummings and Keir Starmer are actually doing at the moment? Uh, it's a, a particular point about who you focus your energy on, mm. you know. And Cummings is is another one of those kind of dark lords, you know, the, the kind of eminence grise who who sit in the background. Not that I like to call him an eminence, but, you know, he is he's a guy who's, who, who likes to kind of court publicity occasionally but stay in the background and pretend he's not in control. But we know he is. And it's just like the, the media barons, you know, they don't like publicity. So, And nor do, of course, the newspapers like you to make fun of these people because, A, their readers probably won't be engaged by it. They, won't, they may not even know who the, read, who the owners are. They won't know how powerful they are. They probably, they possibly won't even know who Cummings is because he's not the prime minister, you know. And that, and so, trying to get an editor, especially one who's in hock to these same people, to, to actually let you begin to, to bring these people into the into the light is pretty much impossible. So you have to do do it through the same old masks, if you like, of of, of the the politicians like Johnson and whatnot. But, um, if Cummings is, is holding Boris's strings, yeah. who, who's holding Cummings's strings? Is I don't think any, he <laughs> seems to manage to get there on you know without any control. He's quite a remarkable case. He's obviously a man who will not accept no. So mm. maybe um, maybe that's that's something positive, perhaps not in politics, but he you know he he's a man on a mission of his own. I, I think. Uh, and um, and Keir Starmer, what do you think about Starmer, him? I don't know. I get the impression with Boris and Starmer, you know that. Because I was I drew a sort of boxing cartoon a while back. It wasn't Starmer, but, it, but Boris in the ring, and it's kind of to use a boxing analogy. You know, Boris looks like he's on the on the ropes almost constantly, uh, not in a happy place. But Starmer is not doing the Ali shuffle. He's he's just r- reading out clever legal arguments at him. Uh, you know, he's he's throwing the kind of the law book back at him rather than laying. So, so which issues would you put up on the board if you if you're going to um, engage in a satirical project at the moment? What do you think are the the main things that the world of satire should be saying? Well, uh, or do you like to always keep that under your cloak as a surprise when no. you're going to pull something out? What, what do you think are the things that really um, that really are worth going after? Well, it's a kind of, you know the the problem the problem with a satirist working for as we've spoken about before working for organisations that are right within the mainstream. Cartoonists talk about, 
speaking truth to power, you know, like sort of tribunes of the people. My experience is not is one where you just not just able to speak truth to power, unhindered, unfettered by editorial constraints. You are because that's the way the newspapers and the media work, and so you can't really pick pick your topics freely. You know, you're you're essentially responding to the tittle tattle of yesterday's politics for or today's politics for tomorrow's newspaper. You don't really, unless you're working for yourself for free and publishing it on Twitter, you don't really have uh, a lot of control because events are what uh, dictate your day-to-day work. Um, and events, well, we know what about events. They, they, they just change and they get in the way of things. And I, you know, I'd love to talk about, or I'd love to, to, to highlight the ecology of, of what's going on, the, an ecological uh, growth after after this crisis i'd like to talk about as we've said i'd like to talk about the way the media controls our public discourse i'd like to talk about uh the the capture of democracy by you know by these they're populists at the very least and nationalist populists which is not a million miles away from fascism a morally corrective humour is what satire is all about, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and um, the more the more outlandish the political scene mm. becomes, the less easy it is to employ it in an effective way within the public domain. Yeah. And also for people to um, uh, uh, even have a demand for it. Isn't yeah. that what you're saying? About yeah, I do. And, it, and, so, and when you think about it, chaos and revolution and war mm. are not... Uh, fertile grounds for satire. No, no, you know, no. there's, there's past the point of satire right, yeah. uh, at that point. So you uh, cartoonists live in this kind of golden, balanced world where uh, there's enough freedom for us to participate, to, to, to make fun of things. But, you know, it needs that freedom needs to be given by the people, essentially, who do it through their politicians, you know. But if it's not given or if it's withdrawn, there's not much we can do unless... You know, well, you can't do anything. You, you have no platform to, to work from and you have no followers. Uncharted waters lie ahead, but we're safe in a rich Western democracy, aren't we, from all of those fearful things that are happening elsewhere? I don't know. I mean, we look, look at what's happened. You know, you, uh, you, you asked that question sort of rhetorically because, yes. you know, we're, we're in a situation which is kind of post that, mm-hmm. really, isn't it, mm-hmm. in this so-called post-truth, post-truth society. And it, what can... You know what? What sort of a what what sort of course do we take after finding ourselves in that position? It's hard to know because I, you know, in my lifetime we haven't been there. I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I remember I was growing up in the sixties in London, and uh, which was a kind of even then I sort of thought of this glorious period of, of hope yeah. and growth and freedom, a sense of increasing freedom, and I thought my naive little boy's mind that I didn't think I didn't have the words for it but I thought this was a linear thing Mm -hmm. we were on a linear uh, uh, I was watching a woman um, on Parker's piece the other day um, and there were hundreds and hundreds of black ravens, um, like a kind of enormous omen of doom well, disaster, yeah. uh, all over Parker's piece. And this woman ran into the middle of them and shooed <laughs> the birds out of the sky, <laughs> which was um, quite a yeah. nice way to, I thought you were to look say, at current times. Absolutely. You know? yeah. I thought you were going to say it was like a little dog. And I thought, you know, the dog is this metaphor for our, for our saviour. <laughs> no, I'm just a dog.
<laughs> well, I look forward to seeing what, what spitting images are going, are going to come up with as the, as the new chapter in satire opens yeah, in Britain in, in this absolutely chaotic world that we're in. It's, it's going to be great fun to see it. And I also look forward to seeing your next cartoon. Which Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure when it'll be. Mm. Uh, in, yeah, I, um, I look forward to my next cartoon as well. Andy Davies, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. Policing an ever more uncertain and dangerous world is one of the most demanding and stressful occupations life can throw at you. The world sadly needs its soldiers to tackle hotspots, and the terrible cost of war leaves even the toughest men broken and traumatised, and often silenced by their experiences when they return home to civilian life. The whole topic of what happens next in their lives is an ongoing problem, as they're often discarded and disregarded by society. So can taking up a creative career decompress them and help them to live again and get over mental injuries? And what kind of art develops from that? I've been talking to Cambridge artist Julie Kim Ruster, who's concerned with themes of conflict and the effect PTSD has on the human mind and family relationships. Her photographic-based work looks at war and conflict zones around the world and the devastation of landscapes, cities and communities. Much of it through aerial and satellite photograph footage she's legally procured via a website. She takes the photos and then works the images into artworks using a range of colouring techniques designed to enhance them strikingly and express an eye-in-the-sky view of conflict zones. Her now-deceased ex-partner was an SAS Falklands veteran, and she herself came from a military family, having worked in military procurement before resigning over ethical issues. She says the trauma men bring back from a war zone in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder is often hard to live with and can lead to domestic violence. Having herself had an horrific car crash involving a brain injury and PTSD, she felt uniquely able to examine the subject because of her own experiences. She became very concerned when her son Leon decided he'd like to join up to the army and in a bid to dissuade him she introduced him to the works of war poet Siegfried Sassoon and also Wilfred Owen. Siegfried Sassoon, CBEMC, who died in 1967, was an English poet, writer and soldier. Decorated for bravery on the Western Front, he became one of the leading poets of the First World War. His poetry would both describe the horrors of the trenches and satirise the patriotic pretensions of those who, in Sassoon's view, were responsible for jingoism fueled war. Sassoon became a focal point for dissent within the armed forces when he made a lone protest against the continuation of the war in his soldiers' declaration of 1917, culminating in his admission to a military psychiatric hospital. This resulted in his forming a friendship with Wilfred Owen. Sassoon's letters also contain the positive artwork and drawings of the suffering mind rising above a grim reality and decompressing from horror. Julie, first of all, you're an artist. War and conflict interests you greatly as a subject. Why is that? So my background is probably the same as a great many people in this country and actually throughout Europe. My father served in World War II. He lied about his age and served when he was 15 years old. We have my grandfather who served both in the First World War and the Second World War. Then I married somebody who had been in the Falklands and the idea of the glorified war, the glorified soldier, when you have a background of men in your family who have been deeply troubled by war, then that's almost a false reality. And it came to a head when my young son wanted to join the army and I needed to find a way to dissuade him and to show him the truth, so I used arts. 
Um, that, that was an interesting project because um, you used um, actual satellite footage from uh, military satellites in order to create artworks that, that basically centred on places around the world seen from space where uh, terrible things had happened and you, and you, you had a, quite a message in, in that, um, that exhibition you yeah. did. At the time, so I'd come up from Cornwall, so we had RAF Coldrows uh, next to us. In the beginning of the conflict, I was hearing so many planes take off, I knew they were going to Cyprus to refuel, and I had a certain idea that they were bombing. So when I came to Cambridge, I decided, nothing was in the press, I decided I would find out for myself what was happening. So I found a legal way to hack into Sentinel satellite systems where you get a six hour delay. So you see what's happening six hours behind. And as a mother of two boys, I found what I saw very disturbing. Okay, so um, your, your, um, your PhD that you're working on uh, at the moment looks at certain aspects of conflict and centres um, on, on the writing and works of um, war poet Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, and um, what's the brief on that project? Because it sounds extremely interesting. It started off by being the illustrated letters of soldiers from the front because there was a lot of detail in the images that was absent from the writing. It's almost like the picture came first and they were ghost-written. So in the very beginning, I started doing a lot of archival research and I noticed that poets writers and painters were, say if I looked at a thousand postcards or, or, or letters, I would see that the highest percentage were by artists, poets and writers. So I started focusing on Siegfried Sassoon because I'd used his poetry to try and dissuade my son from joining up. Now, um, in your um, uh, exploration of Cambridge University archive, I think it's at Churchill College, isn't it? You actually found um, some, uh, some letters of Siegfried Sassoon's which are a little known, isn't that right? Cambridge University have several sites <laughs> where you can go to see known Sassoon letters. But I had an idea that not everything was public, so I went, I started looking in Cambridge Manuscript Room, which is the most beautiful and welcoming place in Cambridge, as far as I'm concerned. And I managed to find a link between Sassoon and the musicologist and professor, Edward J. Dents. And I called for all of the files for Dents, and you write a little ticket, you go to the counter and really lovely people help you. Half an hour later, a trolley came through with, I think, 53 large files. So I started going through them. What you were looking for, as far as I understand, was the effect of war and trauma on the psyche as the centre of your study. Oh, that's uh, and um, that, that's really what you were looking at. And obviously Siegfried Sassoon is a classic example of that, as, as someone who you know, went through this incredible military career where he, you know, he was a hero in the trenches. He did all these daring things and everything, but at the same time had an enormous amount of human compassion for the suffering and damage that it did to people. So how did that inform your study? It 
it informs my study a great deal because there are several different types of soldiers as there are several different types of human beings. Some who have empathy and some who get completely drawn in to this war hero. Now Sassoon probably wouldn't want to see himself as a war hero, maybe in the beginning, but having so many of his friends die, having so many, seen so much, his opinion shifted vastly. What you were trying to do basically is reach into um, how people express themselves when they've gone through horrific trauma because it's different, especially in artwork, than, than it is for people who haven't done that and often they're things which are very difficult to just, um, express. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think, I think I came at it backwards uh -huh. because I'm an artist who is diagnosed with PTSD. So I'm making artworks, making artworks, making artworks, and then you have to have a period of time where you spit out this work, and then you have to think, oh my God, what's that about? So you don't realise it straight away. How did you acquire PTSD? What, what happened to you? A lot of it is down to inter intergeneration trauma from war. So my father came back, he'd broken his back at the age of 16, carrying a soldier back from enemy lines. He never dealt with his trauma. He painted and painted and he tried to paint it out, but he couldn't succeed, so he ended up drinking. So I was brought up in an environment where the war was being fought every single day in my living room. And as a child, that's really quite difficult. But then also I went through a quite severe domestic violence. I think that's when I started putting two and two together because surviving domestic violence where either you or your children have three attempts on your life is like fighting a war. It kind of evolved because from that stage I started making more and more arts. And I started learning, I started studying, and I started literally just saying either I'm going to make artwork or I will probably, this will kill me, I'll probably be dead. And that's a very difficult thing to say, but it was actually a relief because I realised it. And a lot of people don't. There are lots of suicides from trauma. PTSD isn't spoken about. It's only spoken about in the public domain now with soldiers, but for people who have grown up around fathers who've been traumatised from war or have had domestic, physical or sexual violence, male or female, it, it doesn't matter. It takes a long time to be diagnosed if you're lucky. And funnily enough, I was diagnosed by a professional with one of my artworks. So there needs well, to be a public debate. A, a unique position in being able to actually understand this whole syndrome. Yes, because, because um, it, it, what it does, it, um, so there's a saying, and it's more than a saying. I have a, an Amnesty International Award, which I won years ago. And I photographed a lot of women with domestic violence who've been through domestic violence. Now, you don't just go up to a woman and say, have you been through domestic violence? You can recognise. One person who's been through it can recognise it in another. And so it was about giving them a voice, giving them confidence and bringing back their identity. And I think in those artworks, those artworks... I got something from them. The people I photographed got dignity back. And it's not spoken about. 
but I made sure at the time it was spoken about and the Amnesty International Award gave me a good platform and a strong voice to stand up. So the International, uh, the Amnesty International Award, there was a call out for to illustrate mm. the human rights for free speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're saying that you you wanted your your son um, not to go into the army, and I mean obviously uh, um, your ex was um, a Falkland soldier. He was most definitely traumatised. Yeah. So I met him the night we came. He came back from the Falklands. Now after we married, strange things I noticed. Uh, he would sleep with the bedroom window open and he would say to me, if the military ever come back for me, we're escaping. And he'd planned an escape route. We used to, uh, so we lived in Wiltshire. So instead of going out at weekends, we would go into the New Forest and we would camp overnight mm. and he would train me in survival skills. Mm. Then we started teaching young cadets as well and we'd teach them survival skills. But then something quite interesting happened as well because at the time I was in military procurements and after the Falklands War and after the war after that, when the Second War was finished, I remember being in a director's meeting and they said, we need us another war. So I just walked away. I walked away from the whole thing because I'd seen it from the other side. And my husband and I were very, very close, very good man, but he most definitely suffered trauma. And a, a couple, one of his very closest friends who survived XSAS blew his head off when he returned. Uh, and that's very difficult. Your PhD looks very much into the coded messages that's within the artwork that these people produce, isn't that right? Yeah. And I, I have to comment, I have to comment it almost in a forensic point of view. So you look for, first of all, you, when you look at an illustrated letter, especially a Sassoon one, look at it as a child, as a child so you don't understand the writing. So always the image first, then the writing, and then anything that surrounds it, leads up to it or comes after it. Do you think we can learn more about the subconscious, and especially a damaged subconscious, um, from, uh, from the way that people um, express these things? Most definitely. There is a lovely, uh, an easy to read psychologist and art therapist who talks about, um, his name is Stephen K. Levine, and in his book, Trauma, Tragedy and Therapy, he talks about a concept called Dionysian poesis, which is where something is so repressed that when it comes out in an artwork, it's almost like a bringing out of something across a threshold so you can see that trauma. But what he also says is you cannot identify it straight away. Once you've produced that artwork, you almost need to stand back, walk away, and then go back and look at it from a different angle. So this has been my, I've researched this probably now for 20 years, but what happens to the brain in trauma is incredibly interesting. So I'm looking at it from a neuroscience perspective as well. So what happens to the brain during trauma? You mentioned in your book that with Shakespeare's Macbeth actually um, shows um, some, some clues and signs from this in the artwork. With um, the way art crosses over into literature, science crosses into literature, the, the three things are greatly, greatly um, brought together. And if we think about Shakespeare, we have to think that he was living in an age where there were 
soldiers, old soldiers. There was conflicts. There was also the plague. He'd also seen his son die of the plague. And he writes about this beautiful piece where uh, Macbeth's at dinner having committed the murder. There's lots of people around and he hallucinates. And this is something which she says, this is the very picture of your fear. And the process behind that is where is something uh, where, where our brains are controlled by homeostasis. And at that absolute flight or flight scenario, chemicals are released. You, your body is completely controlled by fear. And the traumatic imagination can bring forth hallucinations. So what does lie beneath, according to the findings of your study of all of these things? I think for some of, certainly, the war poets, the war writers, some of the soldiers who had never taken up a, a, a paints before, mm. they had no idea how to voiceify what they'd seen. And that's because, in simple terms, your mind will, in your hippocampus, it will flow information. And when you're terrified, instead of a flow which concentrates on language to communicate, it prioritizes a flow where the visual image communicates. So if you imagine flight or flight, oh, where am I going to go? Who am I going to fly? So you need to see. And, and that's what happens, and that's why comes out mainly in image. The letters starts off very formally. Dear Mr. Dent, so they've just been introduced, all sorts of things so like that. So he was, uh, he studied uh, music at Cambridge University. Then he wrote music as well. And then he became a professor. And what he liked to do is he liked to take opera and he liked to make it accessible to the people. So, you know, not somebody who was grand and pompous, somebody who believed in sharing and decoding uh, something which was supposed elites so very set but he was he was almost flamboyant in his homosexuality so he was a known homosexual whereas when Sassoon met him Sassoon was still extremely repressed mm. the lesson starts off almost quite formally so dear Mr Dent then they go into Edward and so on and then they go into they have a lovely drive together mm. so they're getting to know each other and one of the most beautiful ones in the beginning uh, it's after after a few months and it's dated 13th of March 1916 and it's to Edward and it says red roses are too lovely for the post these ginger pots look lovely and I hope you don't hate ginger this is uh, a letter dated the 3rd of the 3rd 1916 and Sassoon writes to and this is where the name ginger pots comes from he writes to Edward Dent and he says Red roses are too lovely for the post, but these ginger pots look lovely. And I hope you don't hate ginger, Siegfried. So this is where his name comes from. In between the two illustrated letters are, is his action of the, the, the raids which, which got him his military cross. And there is a big difference between the first illustration and the second because all of this action is going on in the background. Can we have a look at those those two um, drawings? Because uh, I'd like you to sort of um, go through 
decodifying what's in the drawings specifically. I'm going to read for, from a letter dated the 30th of April 1916 by Sassoon and he's posting it from the 4th Army Infantry School in Morlancourt. So I'll read the text first. And it's addressed, my dear Marcius. Now this is the first time he uses that, that word, Marcius. So we have a coding there. I advocate Beecham's pills and reckon these seven golden days have healed me with the green and delicious murmurings of spring. My liver is a noble organ. Performing its functions in faultless acquiescence to all that I eat and assimilate. Uh, zero days of lime juice and soda, forget that you were once gloomy with furious f swallowings of rum. I am here for a month, and for a month I am here, and everywhere in Potsdam is fine. I march with majors and captains to delicate and refined, where we learn the latest skills that shall enable us to disembowel and destroy all Germans to their complete discomfiture. The Fourth Army School is a blessed loaf and I get the blessed evenings to myself and graves waves of cynical delight surges around the surrounding shores of my beautiful bright brain no one can possibly kill me until May the 21st signed and sealed by Sigrid Sassoon you have to ask what's happening on May the 21st and we have to put that aside for a moment now, if we have a look at the image, now I'm going to describe it. So, the first thing I look at is where the image comes. So if the writing goes around it, if the image is at the center. Now, this image we have at the bottom of the page, taking up about a third of the page, and this is on a single letter, and it's in uh, blue ink. So, the image goes into the writing. We have a, a man with his arms raised up towards the heavens, almost reaching out. Now this, I believe, is supposed to be Sassoon, and it's almost Gormley-esque, so it's a beautiful shell. Now, above him, by his open palms, is a coloured-in-love heart, and a beautiful shining star with bursts coming out of it. And this kind of movement of this forward movement in just a couple of ink lines. Then we have a, at his waist level, we have um, lots of repeated lines which are like, uh, symbolize a, a distance. Okay, now above that we have some beautiful flowers, daffodils, tulips, and a rising sun. Now on the other side, Facing Sassoon is this beautiful celestial creature with a flow which isn't human but is human. So it's just wonderful and it's a peaceful picture and it's, um, it's a picture you'd write to your lover. This illustrated letter was written uh, on the 30th of April. Now I couldn't find anything in the following letter which gave a clue, so I looked at his war diaries. Now, Cambridge University Manuscript Room also holds his war diaries. Now, on the following morning, he writes, A 
poem which is called The Journey and it's dated May the 1st 1916 in his diary. So he's writing this the following morning and he's probably still got the letter in his pocket to post. And it says, Now I must wander till my journey cease in a country where the winding roads are strange and nothing sounds familiar but the peace that shines on home and homeless without change. When mind was deep and men forbore to fight, the seasons brought me many an evil day. But in my heart I kept the quenchless light that triumphs now in the glory and green of May. For May is in the land and in these eyes and in my quick head in blossoming with song. The kind earth is full of welcome and the skies bless me. So all my days are freed from wrong. I share the loveliest loveliness in that dreams and dies, brief in its grace, but in its perfection long. So in a way, that kind of brings extra passion into that image as well. So it's almost giving a part of a codex. Julie Kinroster, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge Arts Roundup. It's been a most interesting interview. Julie's next art project will publish Sassoon's little-known letters along with works by Mark the Painter and extracts from 9,000 soldiers' illustrated letters. And that's all from this edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup. I hope you'll join me again for some more art stories fished out of the Cambridge Pond during these troubled times.